Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'll tell you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. So you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. Santa Claus is coming. Santa Claus is coming. Good morning, Evergreen Covenant Church. I'm Christine, and it's my delight to be here with you this morning. As Tim mentioned, we're about a week and a half away from Christmas. And I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. Um, Some of you know that I recently had the privilege of going on vacation. I have a lot of family in Hawaii, and so my husband and my children and I had an opportunity to spend uh, about a week there just prior to Thanksgiving. We flew in late Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, arrived just in time for all the festivities, and then three days later, Advent started. That was crazy. Who scrunched those things so close together? Um, While we were in Hawaii, I had an opportunity to have lunch with one of my favorite aunts. She said, Christina, I'd love to talk to you. Let's go out. And so we went, and we had lunch, and she shared with me that she has a very, very dear friend who is dying of cancer. This woman has been moved to hospice care, and yet she doesn't seem to have quite accepted what's happening. And so she's living in a state of anxiety. And my aunt longs for her to experience some comfort, some assurance. And she said, Christine, you're a minister. You're a pastor. Have you ever had to deal with this before? What might I do to help encourage this friend of mine who's not a believer in Jesus what, what, what might I say? And I looked at her and I thought, I don't really know. Isn't that sad? <laughs> she looked to me as this professional minister that could give her some good advice. But sadly, I thought, what do you say? What could we possibly do to help ease this woman's pain, to give her some comfort insurance? How would we say it in a way that wouldn't make her feel bullied or pressured or guilty? And so we sat and we talked and we imagine, what might this woman be feeling? She's probably pretty angry. Why me? Why do you not heal me, God? I have a daughter that's going to be left and a grandson. What's going to happen to them? She's probably terrified. What happens to a person when they die? What happens? What will she face? So we sat and we thought about what she would be feeling, and we thought, what would we say? It's such a weighty and significant conversation. We know that we have good news to share, but we also know that it matters how we say it. And so we came up with two things, simple but very significant. Number one, God is good. And number two, God loves you. 
The first thing I wanted this woman to know is that the character of God is one that is good. And the reason is, I think that so many people are probably thinking about God when they're about to die, and they're thinking about all the things that they've heard or imagined or experienced, and I think some of them, they have a very inaccurate picture of who he is, partly due to the fault of those of us who don't do very well at reflecting his love and grace. And so I wanted her to not have this distorted picture. I wanted her to know that God wasn't willing her suffering, that God hates cancer, that God doesn't want her to die. He wants her to live. He wants her to live eternally. He wants to love and bless and forgive her. That's the kind of gracious, loving God that we worship. And then the second thing I wanted her to know was what God thinks of her. And so for a minute, think about this. What do you think God thinks of you? Imagine, he's thinking about you and you picture him, you know, calling your name or thinking about what you're doing. How does God think of you? Do you know that most people, in answer to that question, reply with the word disappointed? A lot of us know that God is a God of love. And we've been told that he loves us. And in our heads, a lot of us believe that. But in reality, our experience is more, I really think he's disappointed in me. I think about all the ways that I fall short, all the times that I've messed up. And all I can imagine, he's just, yeah, he loves me, but he kind of just shakes his head and thinks, oh, gosh, she did that again. When's she going to learn? I was thinking that maybe that's what this woman, my aunt's friend, was doing. She was thinking about who God is. She was reflecting on the things she had done in her life. She was evaluating whether or not she had lived a good life. And I wanted her to know that God delights in her, that God loves her, and that no matter what she's done or what she hasn't done, he loves and adores her completely that he's not anxious to try to punish her. He's not counting all her shortcomings. He is wooing her to himself. Now, I suspect that if and when my aunt went and had this conversation with her and told her these things, it would come to her as surprising news. I think it would shock her because this isn't what most people expect. They think of God... I believe most people think of him as this old bearded man, the grumpy face, this cold, conservative judge, rather than a loving, comforting daddy. And so there are usually two ways that people respond to a God like this. Either one, they ignore him. They say, they just disregard him. I had enough people shouting down my throat, looking over my neck, shaking their heads, wagging their fingers. I don't need a God like that. Or they start to negotiate. Okay, God is good. God can do things. And if I'm good, he'll do good things for me. Huh. Like, God, if I promise I'll be more generous, would you help me find a new job? I promise. You you get me this new job with a higher salary, I promise I'll start tithing. God, I swear I'll never drink again. Just get me out of this one mess. I know. I said that last time, but I I won't do it again. Just, Just help me out this one more time. Um, God, I promise I'll quit hitting my mic if you just make that go away. Um, 
God, I promise I'll go to church. Just heal this person that I love who's sick. Just rescue them, God, and I promise I'll, I'll start going back to church regularly. The idea behind this type of approach to God is if I do for you, of course you'll do for me, right? Because after all, that only seems fair. And in our culture, we tend to have a very high premium on being fair. We're people who really like justice. We're into fair rewards and punishments. And we operate continuing this principle that if I do good, I'll be rewarded. If I do bad, I'll be punished. I know in my family, the ultimate goal in life, my extended family, is to be a good, good person. Right? I think if you talk to most people, they figure if you can get through life, you know, not do too much bad, the, the good outweighs the bad, then you're a pretty decent person and you should go to heaven. This, uh, this value system is even embedded in our Christian narrative. Let's be honest. What's Christmas about? Year-end evaluations. Yeah. If you've been naughty, you'll get coals in your stocking. And if you've been nice, you get something called sugar plums. I have no idea what that is, but I'm sure there's a modern equivalent. If you think about it, it's actually kind of surprising that Santa is as popular as he is. Because you would think that most people would get. It's pretty unnerving to have this guy watching you all the time, whether you're sleeping or awake. This person knows everything about you, both the good and the bad. And he's going to judge you and ultimately determine whether or not you make it on the good list. That's kind of creepy. Consider this cartoon that appeared in today's paper. This little kid says, Hiya, Daddy. Hey, can Santa Claus see me right now, Daddy? Uh-huh. What about now? Can he see me now? She's hiding behind this blanket. Yep. Can he see me now, Daddy, in the closet? Sure. Can Santa see me wherever I am in the whole house? Uh-huh. What did you say to Elizabeth, John? She refuses to take a bath until after Christmas. <laughs> I think if we thought about it, Santa probably wouldn't be that favorite person that we think of him. And, you know, it's true because he's a person that we have to earn favor from. And you know what? The difference between Santa and God is that we don't have to earn God's favor. He's a God of grace. He gives us gifts even if we don't deserve it. And yet the irony is people love Santa, but very few people love God in that same way. They seem to have a problem with him. I wonder if it's because Ultimately, they really don't think that Santa would deliver coals. And yet they've heard a lot of people talk about the fire and brimstone that'll hail down on you if God's disappointed in you. I think when they imagine Santa, they imagine a man with a white beard and a twinkle in his eye. But if you compare that picture with the picture most people have of God, you'd see an old man with a white beard Eyes glaring in judgment. Consider this. If a person is healthy, happy, and successful, we tend to say this person must be blessed. They have found favor with God. But if a person is suffering from a disease, a broken relationship, a lost job, or a financial hardship, 
we wonder, do they do something to deserve it? Especially if it happens to you, right? Don't you say, why me, God? What on earth did I do to deserve this? Am I being punished for something? Are you trying to teach me some kind of lesson? Are these consequences from some poor choices that I've made? And yet think about what the Beatitudes teach us in Scripture. Who are the blessed? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who are spoken ill of. The truth of the matter is that we live in a world full of sin. And so it's to be expected that we're going to have to contend with some amount of difficulty in our lives. However, the amount of difficulty we face has nothing, nothing at all to do with how we behave or not. And it certainly is not a reflection of how much God loves us. And I think this is super difficult for people to grasp, even if it's what you've been taught and you have known to be true your whole life. It's just too easy to slip back into a merit-based system of living. I know that this is my M.O. This is the way that I choose to live, to strive to earn favor, to strive to do good, to strive to impress. I think it's because I love control. And this system is great for control freaks, right? It gives us a guarantee. It says, if I raise my children this way, If I run my family this way, then they're going to turn out to be God-loving, law-abiding, parent-honoring children, right? If I bring them to church, that's the very least they should be. I want some assurance that if I'm nice to you, if I invite you over, if I treat you with respect, if I give you nice gifts, you're going to like me, dang it. I work hard at that. I want to know that if I give sacrificially to God, if I work hard at the church, that God's going to draw near to me. He's going to be close. He's going to speak my name. He's going to be intimate with me and show his face. I want some assurance that that is going to be the deal because I love concrete steps to concrete goals. I love that sense of achievement, that there's certainty that will be rewarded if I do X, Y, Z thing. Grace supersedes all that. It's way better than the merit system. We all know it, but it sucks. We do not live like people who live in grace. And I think it's because we have this innate desire to show people that we are deserving, and grace erases all that. And I don't know if this is a, a silly example or if this will get the point, but what I thought of was I was living in Southern California, and had the opportunity to move into a brand new condo. And we got to pick all the fixtures that were going to go in there. And this is when Berber carpet first came out. And so they were telling us how great this carpet is because it just stays the same all the time. And I thought, that's terrible. I want carpet that shows the vacuum cleaner lines. When you come to my house, I don't care if it's clean or not. I want you to know it's clean because I actually did something. And if there's no lines to prove it, you won't be sure that I just vacuumed for you. So I hate Berber carpet. (laughs) I like the merit system because it shows how I stack up against other people, how I compare. I also like it because I kind of feel like then people who don't deserve it don't get in on the goods. I mean, don't you hate it? When people who don't deserve good things get them? 
Like, don't you hate it when you've been standing patiently in line at the grocery store, especially now when it's crazy? And then the clerk comes and opens a brand new lane, and instead of taking you because you've been waiting there, it takes the person who just showed up. Like, that's not fair. I don't like that. What's true for us today was true in biblical times as well. And I think this is why the disciples responded with such amazement in today's scripture reading. Now, my guess is that many of you are familiar with this story, the story that we call the rich young ruler. Matthew's the one who tells us he was young. Luke's the one who tells us he was a ruler. They all make a big point that he was rich and that he was a man earnestly seeking to know how to receive eternal life. In other words, he wanted to know, how can I be sure to get in good with God when this world is over? And his question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, already tips him off to the fact that this person is an eager beaver overachiever, like some people I know, like some people I know, like this guy, I would really like him. Since the time that he was of age, he has been doing all the right things. He dots his I's, he crosses his T's, he goes to church, he does all the right things. And he knows it, right? And so he's kind of just telling Jesus, come on, you know, am I I good? Come on. And Jesus answers him and he says, yeah, follow the Ten Commandments. That's what you need to do. But what's interesting is when Jesus starts listing them off, he doesn't start with one, two, three, or four. He jumps to the second half of the list. He says, honor your mother and father. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And the guy's like, yeah, all those things, I've done it. I've kept those things. Good. But it's interesting because Jesus didn't point out to him directly, well, are you worshiping any other gods? In your heart attitudes toward me, not in your actions towards other people, but towards me. Are you putting idols before me? Are you keeping my Sabbath day holy? And the way that he gets at it instead is he says, "Um, Sir, there's one thing that you lack. And what I love about this text is it said that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He didn't look at him and scowl and say, Well, you think you got it good, buddy? I got another thing coming for you. You thought you had it all together? Let me just tell you what you missed. No, Jesus looks at him lovingly. He says, One thing you lack. Sell all your possessions. Give them away to the poor and then come follow me. Usually when this passage is taught, this is where the crux of the message hangs. That Jesus pointed to this young man and identified the thing that had lordship in his life, the thing that he was putting above all else, including God. And so the application for most of us when somebody's preaching on this text is, We need to reorder our priorities. Take some time now. Think about what are the things that have top priority in your heart over God and give those things up to follow him. But this morning, I'd like us to take a different focus. I'd like us to continue. And in this passage, it says, later on, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm going to give you a confession. Many times as I had studied this passage, I didn't really pay close attention to the details. I just figured this was an expression that meant it's going to be hard. Why? Because nice things are nice. 
I am the first to admit, I love the affluent lifestyle. I love air conditioning. I love nice clothes. I love gourmet restaurants. So it's hard for people who like those kind of things to enter the kingdom of God. And so I kind of just thought it was a comment on wealth. But really, that's not what this is about. I was sitting under a teacher once who said, the significance of this passage is quite different. He said that the reason why it says that the disciples were amazed at this expression that Jesus quoted, um, and the reason why they said, so then who can be saved? Is because they were stunned to hear that wealth was not a sign of God's favor. Just like the rich young ruler, these disciples saw the world through lens that, that see everything by just rewards and just punishments. To them, rich people are rich because they're good. Otherwise, why would God have blessed them materially? And if it's so hard for rich people to get into heaven, so hard that, you know, it's harder than a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then what, what hope is there for someone like us? We're not rich. We haven't been materially blessed by God. So how much even more difficult is it going to be for us? And I think this is what people over the centuries have been struggling with. We think that we need to be good in order to earn good things. But if we look back at the beginning of this passage, we see that the, the, the man addressed Jesus as good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that is the pinnacle on which everything hands, stands, hangs. Nothing matters except that God alone is good. Jesus is saying here, he knows that we're incapable of being good. We can't earn his favor. Whether we are rich or poor, we are all in need of a savior. What we need to do, all of us, instead, is to receive the kingdom of God, to receive the gifts that Jesus gives like little children. This is the other thing I never noticed about the passage. This whole sequence comes right after the passage where Jesus is rebuking the disciples who say, keep those kids away from him, don't bother him. And Jesus gets angry and he says, no, 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 you let them come. Unless you come like these kids, you can't inherit the kingdom. And so how interesting that these two stories are juxtaposed against each other. That he, he talks about the way that kids approach Jesus and that we should be like them. And then he says to the, uh, to the disciples, children, and he calls them children. He says, let, or, I'm sorry, the, the passage says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to visit a friend. She was recovering from back surgery, and I went to bring her some dinner. And she's a 10-month-old, Kate. Kate is adorable. I brought a picture so you could see. She has a smile that lights up the room. And I held her for a while, and I just delighted in making faces with her and she was making faces with me and we were playing games and she's learning to talk and so I'd say sounds and she would repeat them 
Kate was not the least bit worried about impressing me. She just delighted in being in my arms, and I just loved being with her. And I could see she was just soaking it all up. And if you look at this picture of her with her dad, look at his expression. She's delighted. He's delighted. I know it's a little bit dark. But isn't this a different picture of the loving father? So different than that image of an old, scowling man that we tend to think about when we think about God the Father. As Kay grows older, her parents are going to expect her to learn some appropriate behaviors, and they're going to desire that she works hard to treat people with respect. But their love is not going to be dependent upon how she behaves. She doesn't have to be consistently good. Eric and Heather are going to love her always, forever. And it's interesting that this is how Jesus explains to his disciples that they need to be. And he calls them. And this is the only place where Jesus says children in addressing the disciples. He tells them, you know what, guys? You don't have to worry. You're going to receive blessings, both in this life and in the one to come. But you're also going to endure suffering. So expect that as well. You need to know that it's completely untrue that if you suffer in this life, that that means you're being punished by God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You will very well suffer in this lifetime because you are following me. This is a radical reversal of what they've always believed. And so if you're a person here today and you think that being a Christian means behaving in a certain way, so that God will bless you with good things, you're mistaken. God gives good things to us to be received as free, unmerited, undeserved gifts. We can't earn these blessings by the way we behave. And we also can't avoid trials by the way we behave. It's all a relative. The bottom line is God is good, and God loves us. These are the two things that are true regardless of whether or not we deserve it and regardless of whatever our circumstances may dictate. So, if you happen to be like me, if you happen to have a tendency to think, oh, everything in my life is going pretty well, I must be doing okay, or, oh, God, things suck, I must really be messing up with God, take heart, because God is a lot more gracious than Santa Claus. He knows when you've been naughty. He knows when you've been nice. But that's precisely why Jesus came into the world. To take upon himself all the punishment that we deserve and to offer himself up as the only good and perfect sacrifice that we might be able to receive, receive with joy, receive with delight, like little children, his free gift of eternal life.